0: Hey, welcome back to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Dan Shapir. Hello from a hot and muggy Tel Aviv. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and this week we have a special guest, Barry Pollard. Barry, welcome back.
1: Hello from a cold and wet cork in Ireland. Cold and wet
0: sounds nice. Anyway, you want to introduce yourself? Uh, Let us know who you are, why you're famous, all that good stuff. Famous? Not sure about that. Uh, My name is Barry Pollard. I
1: am a Developer advocate in the Google Chrome team, uh, specifically in the web performance team. So, I deal a lot with uh, Core Web Vitals. I look after the Chrome user experience report. You might have seen emails from me saying the new reports out there. You might have noticed if you're looking up any of the Web Vitals documentation, my names are splattered all over those. So, if you go web.dev slash LCP, for example, um, you'll see my name because I've helped contribute to those docs. Um, and yeah, I'm here to talk a little bit more about Core Web Vitals.
0: Awesome. Um, we've covered Core Web Vitals here and there, but it sounds like there's something new coming that uh, Dan was telling us before the call is giving people heartburn. Uh, do you, do one of you want to give us a little context there as to uh, what we're looking at here?
1: Yeah, so we're um, we're changing Core Web Vitals. Um, I think we've made no... no! Uh, oh, sorry. <laughs> no problems about that these are intended. They were, they were never going to be um, set in stone and, and not changing from there on. So we've been tweaking the Core Web Vitals for um, quite a wee while now, um, changing things like uh, LCP. We've been stopping um, invisible images being uh, candidates for LCP encoding. coding. Um, some people use those as hacks to try and get around to uh, those sorts of things. CLS went through a big change about a year and a half, maybe two years ago now. Um, where we stopped, looking, stopped making it totally cumulative and only looked in, in sort of window segments. Um, but I think the biggest change um, that we've done since launch is coming up uh, now. So we recently announced that one of the core web vitals, um, first input delay, uh, which is intended to measure your um, responsiveness, your interactivity uh, of your website, um, is being uh, replaced by a new metric called IMP or interaction to next Nextpaint, um, which we think is a bit more of a comprehensive metric. We'll talk a little bit about why in a minute. But I think that the, we've been saying this for a while. We announced it in Google I.O. that it's actually going to take place in March next year. Um, but then our colleagues in the search team went and emailed everybody that has inP problems um, to say, hey, you've got a year to fix these things the responsive issues on your website which caused a bit of a flutter in the SEO industry and got everyone in a panic because much as uh, me giving talks about it, and um, my team giving talks about it is, gets the word out a little bit. I think uh, search is a bigger voice than us and suddenly lots more people heard about it and started panicking about it and saying, hey, what does this mean? Is this something that search is now going to um, say is wrong with my website that I need to fix immediately and what's going on? That was my view from the inside. Dan, you're quite involved. I don't know if you've got a slightly different well,
2: it it certainly had impact. I mean, we all of a sudden got uh, <laughs> an email from our VP of marketing asking us about what's this INP thing and what it's going to do to our rank. So uh, it did have an impact, I'm guessing, on, on a number of companies. Um, but you know what? I think that's a very good thing because um, the situation with P or uh, it not good um, and it's it's important that people start getting in front of this thing um, be- and not just because of the the search impact in fact mostly from my perspective not because of the search impact because the search impact at the end of the day probably won't be that significant for most websites it's because of the impact that it has on actual users visiting a website?
1: Yeah, um, and I think I think that's that's one of the first things I'll say in response to that email, um, which I love, by the way. It's something that got a lot of people's attention. Um, <laughs> it wasn't saying something new is wrong with your website. It was saying um, two things. One, you have an existing problem, and here's making you aware of it. And I think that's what a lot of people didn't get. They thought, oh my God, something's broken in my website. We need to fix it right now. So, one, it was, no, nope, you have a problem. Your website is not as responsive as it should be. And two, it was, if uh, once becomes a core web vital and any ranking impact that comes from that is from March next year, there's no point in telling you in February you've got a problem and you need to fix it for March. So it's getting well ahead of the game of saying, hey, there's an issue here. Uh, once this becomes a core web vital, you're, um, you, know, you, you need to have time to do it. It's definitely one of the more complicated ones. So we need to give people time to um, actually understand it, see what's wrong, and, and potentially fix it. I think it's worthwhile. Even though we actually
2: had a show about this, uh, we actually had uh, guys from the team working on core vitals on the show, and we had Michael talking yeah. about H- INP, and, and how it's different from FID. So I highly recommend for people to go back and listen to that. Um, episode, but can you give like an, a brief description of what INP is, uh, how it's different than what we had before and you know why you're making this change?
1: Yeah. So as I say, Core Web is supposed to measure the user experience of a website. And we do it from a number of different um, aspects. Um, and what I love about it and what I'm saying, talks that I give and stuff like that, is they're explainable to the users. I can explain to my dad what they mean. Um so LCP, Largest Contentful Paint, when is the biggest bit of content there? Be that hero image, be that your H1 title tag. When does that appear? Um, CLS, that whole shifty, annoying thing as things move around as you're loading an article and you lose your place because an ad loads buff. And then the last one is the responsive metric. So we measured that with uh, first input delay. So you click on something, be it the menu. Um, you know, your mobile your phone, you click on the menu at the top left. And how long does it take until that menu opens. So first input delay, that's, a, that's the intent of these responsive metrics. When you click on something, does something happen immediately? Or does nothing happen and you start tapping it again and then suddenly the menu opens and closes and opens and closes and you're like, oh my God, what's going on? That's really I frustrating experience. <laughs> um, well, I do it all the time. I have a very fast phone, <laughs> trust me. So uh, if I experience it, whenever you, actually that's really interesting. Whenever you, we as devs tend to buy nice shiny text but whenever uh-huh. I go to my family and their phone's broken and I have to use that, I'm like, oh my God, how do you use this thing every day? We've got to realize right. that we're very privileged. We have nicer tech than most people do, but whenever you go to other people, who are, and phones are lasting a lot longer these days. So um it used to be a year, a, day, a phone would be kind of, the screen would be cracked, the battery would be dead, you need to replace it. But now quite often, either they're lasting, or if you're... Um, wealthy enough that you want to have the latest tech, you're passing it down to someone else. And phones can last six, seven, ten years now, and it's not unusual to see these older phones on the market. And that's before we even get to sort of, um, you know, out of the Western world uh, where cheaper phones are the norm and um, expensive latest Android phones are very much the exception. So, yeah, measuring that responsiveness is um, the aim of, of this third metric. So first input delay, what it measured was how long after you did that tap or that click or that type um, until your code starts running. So that delay part of uh, what's going on. And that was kind of meant to be a measure of, is the site too busy doing other stuff that it doesn't even start executing your code to open that menu or to do anything like that. Um, But what it didn't measure is how long then that interaction actually took and then any result of that interaction. So it was a start, um, but it was always kind of lacking a little bit. And what we see now is that, um, I can't remember the stats off the top of my head, I'll quickly bring them up here, but 99.99% of desktop websites have a good fit. Yeah. And mobile isn't too far behind.
2: Yeah, I was going to get to that. That uh, I like to say that FID has done its job. That uh, th- this metric has become effectively useless because, you know, it's like in an examined class where all the students get an A+. Obviously, you're not really testing them. Um, so, so that's kind of where we are with, with FID. If I'm looking across technologies, for example, and, uh, and I look at, you know, all this across sites built using React or across sites built using uh, Vue, then when I look at FID for uh, React, um, 96.44% of website, of React websites have good FID. So effectively, it's all of them. Uh, with Vue, it's 96%. Well, effectively the same and again, effectively all of them. With Svelte, it's 96.5%.
1: Um, if yeah not- and, and if that was a true measure of the thing and everyone was getting a plus and sites were responsive we'd be delighted we'd say job done and we'd close it down but as i said even on my high-end phone that's not true and certainly not whenever i go to a lower phone they are laggy they're annoying they're difficult to interact with you have to give it a few seconds so you're right fids um doesn't measure what we want it to measure anymore um the idea behind it was good and I think it was a start and I don't think we were ready with IMP a few years ago when we first introduced it. So it was a start along the path. And in the same way as we tweaked LCP and we tweaked the CLS, um as I mentioned, we're now tweaking FID, but we're tweaking it in a much bigger way in that we're going to replace it completely. Um and I think so the idea of FID was Page load is a particularly bad time. So at that point, trying to interact is probably a problem. So measuring that delay, as in theory, was a good measure of of, uh, when that happened. The problem is, as its name suggests, it's first input delay. So we only look at the first one. And if that was good, we say, hey, this website might be great, Uh, must be great. But people do a lot more than just one click or one tap on a website, and particularly long-lived web pages or SBAs or, or things like that. There's an awful lot more that happens. So we need to look beyond that first one. That's the first big change with IMP is we're not just going to look at that first one. We're going to look at all of them. We're going to pick the worst one, kind of the worst one. There's a couple of caveats around that, but basically the worst one. And say, this is a measure of how responsive that page was for that user um, across its whole lifetime. In the same way that CLS looks across its whole lifetime. Um, and LCP is a load one, so it's it's intended to be only just during the beginning of the lifetime. But the other two are intended to be across uh, a lifetime. And then the second thing is, as I mentioned, it kind of only measures the delay. Fit. Interaction to next paint is trying to measure more of that um, interaction. Now, this is one that gets people confused a lot because it doesn't measure the entirety of the interaction. Um, again, it's a step forward. Whether we ever need to get to that, I don't know. But what we do is we measure, again, we try to name these metrics in a somewhat useful name. We don't just choose the the 3 letter acronym that's free at that time, uh, even if it may seem like that. So we measure from your interaction until the browser is next able to paint. Um, And that means, so you click a menu. Ideally, the menu opens, um, and that's the paint. Sometimes some interactions are going to take a bit more. So if you do... Load more articles, for example, on a page it might have to make a network fetch it might need to do stuff it might take a little while if that takes a while um, and nothing happens um, that's not a great user experience. but if it takes a while and the whole page is blocked and you can't do anything else, you can't click on anything, you can't scroll, you can't um, open a disclosure is it you can't fill in a form then that's really bad so it's meant to measure that sort of is the main thread being blocked completely by this interaction, or, or is there uh, an opportunity to do other things, even if the interaction takes a while. Again, think of another one is if you're running a, I don't know, a video encoding website, so you up, you're running YouTube, for example, you upload your video, that's going to take a long time to upload to process your video to say done. Um, but if, as long as the website isn't frozen during that time, and you can browse around and look at other videos read the comments and stuff like that, then that's a good experience. Now, of course, we want people to sit there and say, uploading dot, 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 estimated time, five minutes or whatever, and give you some sort of feedback there. Um, but the first point of being able to give that feedback is to actually allow paints to happen. So even without that feedback, you can get away with it. From a UX perspective, we recommend that feedback. And ideally, as I say, the actual interaction should finish. But there is a possibility of other stuff happening in the
2: background. So... so- Put it a kind of a different way. What you're saying is when you launch an interaction, the logical conclusion of the interaction might take a while. Like you said, if it's downloading a whole bunch of additional articles, that can take, I don't know, a second or two. But you want to, first of all, display some sort of visual response much earlier than that as an indication to the user that you know, acknowledging their interaction, that something is happening in response to their interaction. And during that operation, you don't want the user interface to be stuck or frozen. You want for it to continue to respond to any additional interactions that the user might do, you know, while you're processing that lengthy operation.
1: Correct. And I saw, I think it was on Hacker News or something, and whenever this went around, it was like, oh, all you need to do to get around this is just not block your main thread and just sit there and say processing or paint one pixel. And I was like, yeah, and that's a good thing, by the way. We're happy if you do that. You do and those by, two things. Our job is by done. the way,
2: that's kind of the way that the web works out of the box. Because if you could look at what buttons do when you press them, you have that 3D effect of being pressed and then unpressed. That's exactly it. You know, then processing that button click might take longer, but at least you want that visual cue that you press that button. Um, so, yeah, yeah I totally
1: agree with you quite, often, quite often, those browser widgets, um, it, like if there's a default button, some of them, uh, it's a bit complicated, but some of them can happen automatically because they happen often in there, but most of them, and particularly if it's custom button, you need to to um, allow the main, th- the main thread to be free enough to draw that interaction or a paint to happen, to show that 3D effect. So yeah, that's another thing is that we want that to happen. Even if you're, you know, you don't put up, a, I'm processing what I'm doing and all you get is that 3D effect, but at least that's something. But as I say, from a UX perspective, it's much better to give further feedback and actually keep the user informed as to what's going on. Or, yes, thank you, we've received that button click. We'll get back to you in a minute. This is going to take some time. Now, with
2: FID, as you know, you said, and I quoted some numbers, uh, the, the situation in most websites is, is great. In fact, it's kind of too good. That's kind of the inverse of the situation with IMP. Because if I'm looking across the various frameworks again, then um, only 47 or 48% of all React websites actually have good INP. Uh, with view. it's slightly better at 49%. And with Svelte, surprisingly, it's slightly worse at 46%. I think, by the way, that it might be worse because uh, Svelte is more often used in countries with lower-end devices precisely because it's lighter weight. So it's kind of being penalized, as it were, for being like too good, so it's used on in you know more problematic scenarios. Uh, I can, you know, check by filtering for the U.S., but it's not really not that important right now. But the bottom line is that if for FID we were at almost 100 percent across all frameworks, with inp we are at around 50 percent with all frameworks. So. It's effectively means that the number of websites that have good core vitals will drop in half, more or less,
1: come March? No, no, that's not quite true. So we did some analysis for this, for the the Web Alignac, which is another um, project that I'm involved in, was involved before I joined Google. Um, They did some analysis on the performance chapter, um, which I'll just pull up. Um, And there is definitely going to be a drop. In the number of websites passing core web vitals, however, despite the um, INP being more difficult, and yes, being more difficult on rich interactive websites, typically JavaScript framework-based websites are intended for, rather than a static right. blog site. React's website.
0: broken? No, I'm just.
1: No, I mean th- those are used for for bigger things. But even right. with that, LCP is still the tougher metric to pass. So the number of websites that are failing LCP is uh, lower than the number of websites that are failing IMP. So given oh, that, really? yes, some sites might move from failing LCP uh, to now also failing LCP and IMP. But as an overall number of websites um, passing core web or failing core web vitals, it's not as dramatic a shift as that. There is a, um, I'll just need to leave it up there. I think it's like a 10% drop or something like that. So it's not a, 20%, 30% drop, whatever numbers you were quoting there. Um, but there is um, a drop. Uh, da, 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 da. I'm trying to see exactly. So across all of them, 40% of the websites have a good um, score Web vital. This was done in June 2022, and it drops down to 31%. So, yeah, it's not from 40% to 20%, um, as those numbers might indicate, because you've got to remember it's a combination of all those three and again if lcp was a lot easier and a lot more websites were passing that and int was the the reason of the holdback where the um, the lowest metric then that you would see a more dramatic shift so again we don't need to panic about this thing and we the intent of these websites of these metrics are to push people in the right direction and if you make it too low like only 5% of websites pass everyone's going to go this is an impossible um, target to achieve, what's the point? So, and I think that's another good point, is like we set um, thresholds for each of the core web vitals, and for IMP, it's 200 milliseconds is a good threshold. Um, UX research says that should ideally be 100 milliseconds. That's when humans start to notice that there's a, a noticeable delay. But we just don't think that's achievable at the minute on the web, um, especially on mobile, especially given uh, the devices that uh, the range that are out there. So rather than giving an impossible target that everyone's not going to you know the vast majority of people aren't going to be able to achieve we want to make a realistic target and if that means listing our thresholds a little bit that's what we do um so hopefully in the future we can maybe bring that in a little bit we haven't really adjusted the metrics on any of the core web vitals at the minute because we haven't seen enough of a move um but that's always another option of continually tweaking and changing these things but at the minute we're going to have to be a little bit laxer than we'd ideally like so I, I have a couple of questions
2: about how, in fact, to deal with pro test results. But before I go, I take us there, I, I have another question, a slightly in the side, maybe. I, I know that you guys have also been looking at, at um, uh, including soft navigations in the measurements, because you mentioned that uh, uh, INP, like CLS, is measured across the entire session. And for single-page applications or SPAs, that could be a fairly long time, and all the you know navigations that quote unquote occur in between are actually considered to be effectively the same page throughout. But I know that you guys are looking at ways to uh, uh, consider these soft navigations to be kind of the same or similar. The hard navigations that occur in multi page applications when you go from page to page. Uh, is that the case? And when it, if, if if and when it does happen, you know, have you looked at how that might impact both INP and CLS?
1: So, uh, yes, that is something we're experimenting with. Now, it's, it's already enough days with it. We're encouraging people to try it and give us feedback. Uh, we're desperate for feedback on all the things that we try and launch. So um, that's my plea out to the people there. If that's the thing that interests you, I published a post on that. If you just um, Google experimenting with soft navigation, you should find it easily enough. Um, But, yeah, at the minute, we treat each page load from a browser perspective differently, and we report the Core Web Vital Metrics at the end of each uh, page um, lifetime. Um, So if you visit 10 pages on a traditional I hate the term multi-page app, but let's go with it. Um, you know, a <laughs> traditional MPA. Um, and then you do 10 soft navigations, as we call them, on an SPA, where the, as far as the browser is concerned, it's one page, and you've faked the page uh, the navigation. So from the user, it might look like they're different pages, and from the user perspective, um, they think it's 10 pages. But from browser's internal perspective, it's one page. Then you'll only get one core website reported back for that, which also means then that if uh, in, in a lot of these cases, like INP, you'll get the worst um, INP uh, uh, reported back. You'll get the worst bit of CLS reported back. So there's always been an accusation that this is unfair because you know as the more you interact with the SBA, eventually you're going to hit a glitch or something, and, and you're going to get a bad uh, interaction or. Um, if 9 out of 10 AM1s are good, then we should get 9 out of 10 being reported good rather than 1 out of 1 being reported bad. And I, I think that's a fair um, accusation and it is a challenge. I think in IMP, we've um, considered that a little bit. And I said we report the worst interaction, and I said there were some caveats around it. What we do is um, we look at – the. we used to tell people it was a 98th percentile and stuff like that. We find that very confusing because – Most of the core web vitals are reported at the 75th percentile across page loads. Um, So that 98th percentile for a single page load, which is then aggregated across the 75th percentile, is a very confusing concept for people to get, and they started getting confused about, oh, why is this one different? It's not. But basically, whenever we're reporting the worst IMP for a page, we ignore a a number of outliers. So if you're in... uh, a typing app, you're in WordPress using Gutenberg and you're typing your blog post or you're in Google Docs and you're typing something. You probably notice that at some point through your c- computer doing something else or your network freezing, or something like that, you might get a glitch where your typing suddenly pauses for a second and then catches up. So in general, the page is fairly responsive. It's just glitched there for a second. So we're going to kind of ignore those glitches. So we ignore one um, glitch for every 50 interactions. So the longer you live a page, you will get more of a uh, a glitch allowance, for want of a better word, to say those ones won't count um, because some things are just going to go wrong. We want to measure generally the the kind of the, the, how the response is felt to the user, and we, we accept that the world isn't perfect, and occasionally you get those sorts of glitches. So there's a little bit of that built into IMD already. But yes, you're right. Ideally, what we would do is measure those 10-page interactions. I talked earlier about how core web titles are supposed to measure it from the user perspective and things that you can explain to your dad um, rather than from a purely technical perspective. And as far as the user is concerned, often these 10 pages, these 10 soft navigations are the same as 10 real navigations in the real world and in theory they're faster because everything's loaded up front and that sort of thing. whether that's true or not is something that's been debated a lot in the past, and that will be interesting if we can measure this and see what the what the impact is. Because there's always been this upfront cost of SPAs, but it's worth it because people visit five, ten pages of, of our uh, app. Well, let's actually see if that's the case whenever we get there. Um, but yeah, that that's going on, and there's a lot to figure out about that. So the minute we're concentrating on the technicalities of doing that. Um, and your advice is working very hard in that and we're now, we think we've got a couple of heuristics of, of measuring when we can do these uh, page navigations because again with Core Web Vitals we kind of want to treat every website the same we don't want individual websites to trigger when a soft math happens and do it a million times and get re- great Core Web vital scores um, when that doesn't reflect reality so we're kind of looking at a more heuristic based uh, approach where the URL changes and something changes in the DOM and it was interacted by a user. It's not just an animation happened or something like that. We've got a couple of those sort of things, and then we start emitting new core web vitals to those. They aren't used anywhere yet. They're purely for developers experimenting and feeding back and saying, "Now nah, this didn't measure. Well, that wasn't a soft nav as far as I'm concerned. Or this soft nav, which I do think was a soft nav, wasn't picked up by that. Why not? And then once we get all that, we've got to figure out what do we do with this sort of thing. Do we treat every single soft nav one for one the same as a hard navigation, for want of a better word? Um, do we um, treat them as half a hard navigation? Because in some of them, uh, some of these apps, it's there's questionable where what what a navigation is and what it isn't. The URL is changing, the whole page changing. That's fairly obvious. But if only half the page is changing, if you're clicking on a, a, some, a tweet and it suddenly pops up to. Fill the, half the screen. Is that a navigation or is that more dialogue type thing? So there's lots of nuances to to figure out here. Um, yeah, we we spoke
2: um, a while back with uh, Tanner Lindsay, uh creator of TenStack, and he's a big proponent of putting it as much of the state as possible in the URL. Um, he you know he created uh, the type safe router. And that includes also type safety around URL parameters. So he's very much in favor of putting typed information or state information in the URL parameters. So if every time you change the URL, that potentially counts as a soft navigation and you're using the the URL for state, that, you know, you you check or uncheck some button and all of a sudden that counts as a soft navigation, that
1: obviously can be problematic. Exactly. But then I think the other problem sometimes, Like I remember someone, I can't remember if it was now, but they said, should it be linked to the URL change at all? And um, quite often, soft navigations happen without the URL change. And my reaction to that is, why? And the whole web is built on webs and, um, and URLs. We should be able to go back to that state of whatever is loaded or go into page number three of your SPA. Whenever um, SPA developers don't use the URL, it really, I'll try not to swear here, really annoys me. <laughs> <laughs> because... I'm with you on that. Amen. You know, you can't go back to where you were. You can't bookmark it. You can't send a link to someone. And I say that's what the web was built
2: on. So to and me, it's really
1: important. The way, the
2: that's the point that Tanner was making. The fact that putting all the state in the URL meant that he could you could easily save the state just by bookmarking the site. And you can send somebody else a link, copy the link, and send it. Effectively, they see
1: exactly what you're saying. So I think that's definitely part of it. Then we need to work out how much of the page needs to change. You know, if it's a checkbox just going on and off, is that only 5% of the page, therefore it doesn't count as a soft nav, and it has to be 50%, 100%? You know, we can figure out what it is. At the minute, we're just saying something has to change, whether that heuristic is good enough or not. Um, I don't know. We'll need to figure that out and, and actually see. But that's what I mean. We're trying to work on the technicalities of it. And I think a lot of people are trying to say, okay, when's this coming to Core Web Vitals? And my argument is, we're just trying to figure out if we can measure this properly. (laughs) Then we've got to figure out what we're going to do with that and understand, as I say, one for one. Does that make sense? Uh, Core Web Vitals, I mean, a lot of what people are interested in in them for is the SEO benefit. And if a page isn't a separate page in search, does it make sense to have its own Core Web Vitals? From a UX perspective and a measurement perspective, absolutely, you might want to know about it. But from a search perspective or a ranking perspective, if these internal pages or mini pages aren't surfaced as, um, you know, in in the search engine results page because they're part of an app and not a separate page, then does it. So there's lots of things to figure out there. But first of all is to figure out, can we even do it? And then we can figure out, okay, we think we've solved it. We've dealt with all those edge cases. We're happy where we're landing in this. What do we do with it? Now, if I Um, can pull our conversation in a slightly...
2: Oh, Chuck, you wanted to say something?
0: Yeah, I think my question with a lot of this, because we're talking about, okay, you know, what do we measure and how do we measure it? Um, You know, from from my perspective, I'm looking at it and thinking about, okay, you know, my marketing team or my boss or whoever comes to me and says, hey, um, you know, our ranking isn't where it needs to be do these numbers show up anywhere where people can see them? Because I remember way back in the day when we talked about it, you could kind of get the numbers. It, has that changed? Like, can I go see now what, you know, how far off I am? And, you know, not necessarily get pointers on how to fix it, but just, you know, can I see what's Well, yeah, so,
1: so there's a few different places where you measure this. Um, Google uh, Search Console. Um which you, uh-huh. you have to be a site owner to register you have to prove that you own the site with there's various ways of doing that that'll tell you right. the number of URLs that are passing or failing each of the core web okay. files and they added i m p to that recently, which is then triggered email it's then triggered panic um so that that's ultimately <laughs> a good place for give me all the pages
2: and do that um right. there's one there's one another great thing about the Google search console in that context is that it does some smart grouping because very often um, a, a page is like other pages. Like, you know, all the blog pages have the same structure, maybe, or a lot of the landing or product pages have the same structure. So instead of telling you, like, you know, these this page has a problem and this page has a problem and this page and like 100 pages on your site have, you know, each one shown individually separately, it kind of groups them and tells it, hey, you've got a problem with your blog pages, which is a really right. nice thing.
1: It is and it isn't, because it is a source for a big confusion. When that works, it's really nice. Um, and certain sites it works for, and I don't know how they do it, I don't work on the search side. Um, so, um, yeah, whether it's all those slash blog pages are grouped together. Or this combination of how the, what the pages look like. I have no idea. But on certain websites, I I did a lot of work with Smashing Magazine. It worked brilliantly for them. They had slash blog or slash article pages. They had slash author pages, which used a different template and loaded in a different way. And they had slash newsletter or whatever. You know, they had a number of different types of templates in effect for the page. And you're right, Dan. Whenever the article pages were slow because the, Banner image for the article was slow. That affected all 20,000 articles that they've got. And it's one small fix and suddenly, boom, 20,000 articles are all better and everything's happy and it's very good. Where it gets confusing is whenever you've got either the group it wrong, um, which they're, they're actually very smart at doing that, but um, again, you can't really see about doing that, or you get outlier pages. So it will sit there and say, your slash articles is slow. And here's an example of 10 articles um, that we know uh, that we have individual core web titles for. And the first one passes and the second one passes and the third one passes. And you know, all 10 pass, but in, in aggregate, that group is slow. That causes mass confusion with people going, eh, these are great examples. And, and right. I get it. I, I totally understand why it's confusing. Those are, they're actually ranked in order of visitation. So, um, the, the first 10 uh, uh, most visited pages are shown there, and they might all be passing. Because the other confusing aspect of Core Web Vitals is it's not what Googlebot thinks of your website or what Lighthouse thinks of your website. So it's not a standard, we run this page and it comes back fast or slow. It's what you're, It's not even what Google thinks about your website, it's what the users are. So you might have a lot of people visiting um, uh, older, you know, older articles from a slower country or a slower uh, devices or people reading, why is my web slow articles are probably from slower devices. And if you get enough of those, <laughs> then suddenly that group looks slow. But the examples of the busy pages are fast and it causes a lot of confusion that way. But it is a very complicated thing to try and aggregate all that information up in an easily presentable way of saying, hey, you've got a problem, here's some example ones. And in a lot of cases, it works brilliantly and everyone's happy. In a lot of cases, it's less brilliant and it's a bit more confusing than to, um, you need to explain why it seemingly contradicts the information that's being shown to you. So, yeah, so Google Search
2: Console is the way to see the results aggregated across uh, all the pages in your website which is especially useful for larger websites. If you've got hundreds or even thousands of pages, then obviously it makes it can make all the difference in the world. Uh, and then again, you can then check individual pages using a tool like PageSpeed Insights or web.dev, right?
1: Yeah, and uh, PageSpeed Insights on uh, on the web.dev website will show you both individual pages, but it will also show you across your whole website. Um, and that's another complication that makes sense when you think about it, but it takes a little bit of explaining. Because if you have 10,000 pages on your website and 1,000 of them are super fast, and they're the ones that everyone visits the, uh, all the time, but 9,000 are super slow, then you might see in Google Search Console, um, 9,000 pages are slow, only 1,000 are fast, and you might panic and go, oh. Then if you go and check any of your popular pages, they might all pass page in PageSpeed Insights. And even at the origin level, which PageSpeed Insight also says, it will say most of your traffic has got or is getting fast web pages. Because those other 9,000 ones are old ones. They're not cached in your CDN edge nodes, so they are taking a little bit longer to show. Um, you know, So you get different views on the same data that sometimes yeah. doesn't seem to make sense until you get it explained to you and you think about it a little bit more. So the origin level data that you get in PageSpeed Insight is very interesting because it tells you, as, as a whole, is your site fast. Whereas sometimes a Google Search Console page, it's looking at it more at the page-by-page page level because you might want your slow pages to rank. You might want to know why they're not, uh, they're not um, showing as fast. But just yeah different thing, ways of looking at it.
2: I know another thing that confuses people is the fact that in some views, you only get data if you've got enough visitors. Uh, and you never informed us what the limit is so you know we get i guess that it's a few thousands a month a week i don't know something like that you tell yeah, me yeah you're not you're not getting
1: that <laughs> out <You're not> of informed <laughs> it for a reason and yeah and then you get
2: origin but then, but you get origin data because for the site as a whole there is enough traffic so think- that can be confusing and then in Google Search Console, you will actually get indication for pages, even if they don't really have sufficient traffic because they're yours. So.
1: It's not actually different. It, it, again, it's it's different ways of cutting that. We have um, certain limits um, that we don't publicly disclose, below which we won't show it. And that's for two reasons. One, it's a public data set. So um, we need to be aware of the privacy implications of being able to measure um, another person's site and how much traffic they get and that sort of thing. And then two is also the statistical relevance. If you're getting one or two website uh, visits from God knows where on God knows what device, at some point, whenever you don't get enough traffic, that's just, could be a complete outlier. It could be statistically irrelevant. So you need enough traffic that we're comfortable saying, yeah, this is broadly representative of these pages, or these page groups, or this origin. So in Google Search Console, we don't give actually any more data, but because we gather it up to that group level, there's a better chance of passing that threshold. So again, this is why you see a group of all your blog posts has an average LCP of 2,500 seconds, and here's your, te- your top 10 ones that are 1,800 seconds. So they might have enough to show individual page level, but the group level, um, it's a different uh, figure, or none of the pages have enough to show at an individual level. But we could still give a group level because that passes those that threshold of those two uh, those two reasons. And 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 which brings me to another point. in, there
2: are, like you said, various limitations on the data that you get from Google in this context due to privacy issues and various other restrictions. There's also the fact that you aggregate across a twenty eight Day window. So, if you want to have you know finer grain control, the other option is to just use a third party ROM tool. And there are quite a number of providers out there. You know, we've had several on our show. You know, we had Sentry. Uh, there, there's Ray Raygun is a sponsor. Akamai. There, there are quite a number of such tools. You can even roll your own. By the way, it's not that difficult.
1: Yeah, and I think we're very much proponents of that. We're we're big fans of that. We've always said um, crux, uh, the, having your own uh, rum solution is the way to do it. Crocs is fantastic in my eyes. It, to me, it's democratized, democratized rum. It's given free rum to vast majority of the internet there, or at least the visited internet. Um, So we're talking 18 million websites suddenly have some idea of what the real users are actually experiencing on their website. Prior to that, RUM was a very neat product. Um, used to be quite expensive as well. Um, So it was the big boys that had it, you know, that could afford these sort of RUM products. So we've now given it to everyone, but with major caveats in that it's very high level. So the way I like to say it is, Crux will tell you you've got a problem, but not necessarily why or how to fix it. So a run product will allow you to then drill down into it in a lot more detail of which particular pages is it. Google Search Console is an attempt to do that. As I say, sometimes it works fantastically. Often it works fantastically, sometimes less so. Um, a run product will allow you to, say, categorize these pages in these ways. It not, shouldn't be done by blogs and articles and newsletters. It should be done by products or product categories or whatever. And it will also allow you to, say, to look at your users and say, oh, the people from UK who are logged in get great performance. The people from France who are logged out get poor performance. Why is that? Oh, we don't have this. We don't have that. And I'm allowing to look at it. So, yeah, we definitely recommend um, looking at ROM. And, yeah, there, there's ways of on your own. Google actually gives a um, free library, the website JS library that I also look after. Um, which isn't a full run product, but does give you the, the core web vital metrics and a couple of others, and allows you, with a couple of bits of JavaScript, stick it on your website, measure these metrics, and report them back to wherever you want to. Google Analytics is one place that we, we say you the way, back to.
2: As far as I know, most, if not all, of the third-party run providers are actually built on top of that library.
1: And uh, that's not... True, a lot are uh, and more and more are. So, I think Cloud Player uses it, and there's quite a few of the smaller players that use it. I think the bigger players like um, Akamai, built in Boomerang, which has been out for a number of years before that library, um, and some of the other the more traditional run players have their own uh, library. But yeah, we're seeing a lot of new ones enter the market that are one man, two man workshops that are giving great solutions to this sort of thing.
2: So, when I just, you know, my own personal experience when I worked at Wix um, and I implemented Core Web Vitals for all across all Wix websites. Initially, I implemented it, I rolled my own (coughs) because I actually predated that library. Uh, But now that I work at Next Insurance and we, and again, I actually rolled our own custom solution because of our, you know, special needs. Uh, I actually did leverage that library, which is just excellent. And it's much easier than going directly to the DOM APIs. Um, yeah,
1: I think that was the intent of it, is whenever we we add something to the web platform, there's a constant argument between should it be low level and people can build on top of it, or should it be high level, this is here, exactly what you, you need and what you want. And generally, there's a trend for more getting low level, because we don't know how these things are going to be used. So better to give you the shifts and you build CLS on top of those shifts um, or we give you all the interaction timings, you build IMP on top of that um, but the more we did that um, I was having a discussion with Phil Walton who, who created that um, the other day, who created that library, is there were certain things that were getting more and more complicated of how exactly is CLS calculated, how exactly is LCP calculated, particularly in, in sort of weird edge case scenarios, you open a tab in the background and then go to you're going to get a very high LCP because that's when it first got painted and so on. So, we created that library as an intent of kind of explaining that. And it was kind of more of a reference point library rather than something we necessarily intended people to use. Um, but it's been very successful and it's taken off and done that. I think well, even the RAM providers who aren't using that, we point them to us to that library and say, here's a, a coded example, not even docs. You can actually see in the code how it works for IMP. Um, this is sort of uh, thing that you should be doing in your own library to actually use. Now, I'd like to pull
2: us in a slightly different direction because we've been talking about how to measure and what is measured, but we're not, we've not talked so much about what actually causes the performance problems and how to deal with it. Yeah, and I, I rec- wanted to go there too. And I recently saw this kind of spicy tweet from Ryan Florence, who apparently specializes in spicy tweets. <laughs> um, and, you know, uh, Ryan, Ryan, for those who don't know, is one of the is one of the creators of uh, first React Router and then uh, Remix. So he wrote, and I'm quoting: uh, web performance is almost exclusively about one, being good at databases, two, parallelizing asynchrony. Three distributing access in that order. Um, I've got thoughts and feelings about that, but I wanted to hear your own, Barry.
1: Um, I'm going to go back to Steve Souders who kicked off this whole web performance sort of thing. Um, I can't remember his exact quote, but it was something like um, 90% of web performance is on the front end uh, and only 10% is on the back end or something like that. So he um, advocated much more looking at what the browser does rather than necessarily what the database does or your network requests or or things like that. Um, And I think someone else recently, a couple of years back, reran some of his analysis and and came up with basically the same conclusion, is browsers are fantastically complicated and and able. There are whole operating systems there. So a lot of what he says, I think... um, what Ryan said there has a grain of truth to it. I'm not sure, like you, that I'd agree with it totally. Um, and there is a lot to be done with the front end as well. Um, some of the things that he's talking about, databases, there, um, asynchrony, asynchronicity, whether he's talking about network fetches or more what happens in the, the client, there, I'm not entirely sure. And again, distributed access is the same thing. But I think there is an awful lot that can be that needs to be done also on the front end I think databases are typically you get a lot of leeway there a lot of um, uh, you can get away with a lot of bad database code I, I spent the first 10 years of my uh, career looking at database codes um, working in banking and databases are amazingly fast and they forgive an awful lot of things um and to be honest technology in general is amazingly fast and forgives a lot of per practice, whether that be users or developers. Um, but I think the distributed nature of the web means that clients, you have no idea whether it's going to be a fast Apple Mac with the latest GPUs and gigabytes of RAM for free, or whether it's going to be a 10-year-old Android phone with one single CPU. Um, they're also trying to play a game with the, the, or watch a video with a picture-in-picture screen at the same time surprising the web. So, I'm not sure I totally agree with that. I'd be interested in hearing what your issues were with that tweet.
2: Um, look, I think it really depends on, on what act you're measuring. I mean, if we're looking at core vitals and the three core vitals we've mentioned before are uh, LCP, CLS, and let's say INP, because effectively, you know, soon that'll be the core vitals. Um, then, you know, CLS. That's not, uh, databases don't have impact on CLS. Uh, You know, whether things like Jitter and Jump, you know, uh, that doesn't really have anything to do with how the duration of your database queries. Uh, Likewise, databases don't, shouldn't really have impact on your INP or FID because you should be, If you're going to perform a lengthy database operation in response to the user interaction, you want to show some visual cue up front so that the user will know to wait for the response. So out of the three Core Web Vitals, databases, you know, totally don't impact these two of them. And even with LCP, it's kind of debatable because it's kind of dependent on how your web application is architected. So I really think it it depends on what you're measuring, which very much depends on what your web application is all about.
1: Yeah, I think, and I also think there's a tendency to... Like in the past, we, we concentrate a lot on load metrics. And I think a good point of the core web factors is when moving away from that, it's still very important, which is the why one of the core web factors is about that. But the other two are, as I say, CLS can be heavily influenced by load. I and B can be slow while the browser's busy there, but we're looking across more uh, holistic being the whole web life cycle, uh, web page lifecycle there. Um, and maybe that's, again, a, um, I don't want to say dated, but if he can do a spicy tweet, I can give a spicy take. Maybe that's a dated view of web performance is not only about load anymore, at least in our view at Google. Um it is a, a bigger thing than that. So having you know, people might be okay with a website taking slightly longer to show as long as it's a good experience when it's there. Ideally, it's great in loading and in experience, but if your LCP is slow but your CLS and your A&P is fast, maybe that's good I mean, instead of everyone thinking, Well your L C P has to be fast, that's a given and who cares about interactivity as long as it's yeah. uh, there. So there are like, differences.
2: Like are you building a, a marketing, or let's say a, a, an e-commerce website where all the pages need to be uh, uh, searchable? And so SEO obviously matters for every page in the site. And it's mostly about loading times because you really want the product page to load quickly. Or maybe you're building some sort of a web application that's even sitting behind some login screen, and and you know I don't know like uh, like a Twitter. Uh, the loading time for Twitter is not that important, or it's less important compared to how quickly it responds once you're inside Twitter. So yeah, it really depends on on what the website does, how it works, and what
1: the goals are. Um, but but it, it yeah, go for it. Jake Archibald gives a great example of this. So he, he put Photoshop on the web, and he said, Photoshop taking some time to load is okay. You know, it's sitting there and it's doing that loading bar, loading filters, loading this, loading that, whatever. That's fine, because I'm not coming here to just read an article and then go away. I'm coming here to do some hardcore graphic work and probably to be in here for half an hour, an hour, and then do it. That's a different expectation than clicking on a link. And to be honest, I say Twitter is more closer to, or X, uh, is more closer to that other one. Of quite often you just want to click on a tweet and read it, or you just want to check in while you're, um, you know, have got five minutes to spare. Um, so yeah, there is definitely different use cases um, of when you're going to accept something as slow or, um, or whatever compared to you're taking a product that you're interested in. When I mean, you click on, I don't know, I want to buy black shoes, there's 10 websites. You click on one, that's taking five seconds to load. I get that, I'm going back and I'm going to site number two and clicking on that one. No, oh, it loads instantly, right, I'm going to buy there. So there it's much more important to have a sort of quick load and as I say, ideally a good interactive experience afterwards.
2: So if we consider the three core advisors, um then can you give us, you know, from your experience, working with so many websites in your capacity, in your role at Google. Like what would be the top two performance related recommendations for each one of the three core vitals?
1: Okay, this is getting back to my JS Nation talk, which uh, first put me in your guys' radar. Um, Yes, at the beginning of the year, we published a post, the top core web vitals recommendations. We did a lot of work of looking at what things people can do to make their websites fast. Um, and there's a blog post out there, uh, have a look for it where I did a talk at JS Station on it. Um, and then we came up with three metrics for each, but I'll, I'll agree to your uh, terms and and try and narrow them down. You um, can we wanted, three if you feel like it, <laughs> for each one. And we'll see <laughs> if I can remember all nine. Um, but what we wanted there was things that we think people could actually make a real world difference with. Because we can sit there and say, don't use React, server-side everything. Do that. But are people going to do that? Um, you know, There's good reasons for people using React. Um, and server-side rendering is more complicated. Or inlining CFS is another one that well, is it, amazing for making your websites faster, but it's really complicated to get right. And is it worth the hassle? Um, so, yeah, we came up with a, a few um, thoughts. So, LCP, the main thing there we've got to say is put stuff in your HTML. The browser works best when it's given work to do. If your entire web page is a div with app.js inside of it, um, or ID equals app, and then the script that does everything, you're basically saying, browser, I don't trust you to load this website. I trust this framework to do it better than you, or I trust my developers to load it better than you. Um, Whereas if you sit there and give as many resources as possible to the website, even if it's a heavy JavaScript website, at least the browser can get started in those. Ideally, as HTML, you know, so it displays even though there's not JavaScript, even if it's a kind of skeleton screen type thing. If that's not possible, then resource hints and preloads and that sort of thing. But give the browser something to do while it's, it's uh, not doing uh, so
2: a So a contentful response, which is better for both users and for search engines.
1: Yeah, I mean, search engines from a lot of Google in particular. Um, they can process um, JavaScript, and, and they do very well with that. But, yeah, a contentful resource. Um, secondly, uh, fetch priority, I think, is magic. Um, it's a new attribute that Chrome introduced. Um, I think it was only this, this time last year. It's been out there a while. We've been talking about it a while. But it's basically a way for you to say, this thing is important. So... Um, browsers, as I say, are very good at web- loading web pages, but they have to be very generic. So they have to sit there and load websites in a way that will work for most websites. Um, and one way they do that is they deprioritize images initially. They, you know, they look at scripts, they look at CSS, they say, "This is what I need to, to render a website." We'll leave a big white blank square there for an image, and we'll get to that whenever I finished all this critical stuff.
2: You're actually, actually
1: you're actually so making good. a change
2: there now, I think. We are,
1: a very exciting change there. So, anyway, we we'll, will we'll, talk about it in a minute, but fetch priority is a way of saying, this is my main image. I think it's important. I think it's super important. Consider this as critical as the CSS and your scripts, and load that early. Um, and then the change, I presume you're talking about was part means uh, change from a couple of days ago, is that the one? Yes. Yeah, so... The downside of that is that we need website developers. No, but what it is.
2: Ah, you're, okay, sorry.
1: Yeah, so we need to, yeah, you need to sit there and say, this image is super important, don't delay me, don't deal with me later, get me now. And the idea is hopefully it's there quicker. Ideally, whenever the first paint happens and the website shows, oh, I've got my nice super banner image or my headline article image or, or whatever. The downside is that developers need to then... Um, actually add that little bit of thing. It's one HTML attribute. It's not difficult, but the way web pages are built or, you know, if you've got a template that works in the CMS, maybe that's easy to do. If it's more dynamic or more complicated, it might be more complicated to do. So is there, we started thinking, is there a way that we can do this automatically? Um, Can we load? uh, It's very difficult to actually know what the most important image is. Developers write all sorts of weird and wacky websites out there. (laughs) <laughs> you like to think that website will be all in order, but with CSS, it can be rearranged all over the place. With JavaScript, more stuff can load, and other things can go in there and stuff like that. So figuring out what the LCP image uh, is difficult. For an author, as I say, if you've got a CMS, you've got a template, you might be able to sit there and slap that attribute on that um, um, LCP image, as we know what it is. So we've, um, or when I say we, Patrick Meenon is uh, who I should give all the credit to, it's um, experimenting with is could we figure that out? Could we pick um, the first image? Is that the one? And quite often, no, it's not. Maybe it's a I don't know the logo for the the website or it's a phone icon. Um, could we first pick the first biggest image? Sometimes we know the size of the image. Sometimes we don't until the CSS code in there. Well, he he tried a few different combinations. What we settled on is that five images. Um, we're going to sit there and try and. Boost those not as high as Fetch Priority. So it still has a, a pace, but we're going to try and boost them up to medium. So Fetch Priority is typically uh, used to boost it all the way up to high. So it will just start fetching those a little bit earlier and hopefully affect that uh, improvement. Improvements in LCP weren't, you know, they aren't spectacular. Some websites are going to be, um, see a bit boost, but we're not going to see a 10% jump in in. Um, pass rates or anything like that, but some websites definitely notice that. And CLS, where we actually saw a bigger thing than that, is getting the images down means that they um, will be drawn initially rather than uh, stuff moving around as they're loaded later after the first load.
2: If I can provide my own additional recommendation related to LCP from my own experience, is make sure you've got your caching headers done properly.
1: I was actually going to cheat on LCP and do the third one. So our third one was um, CDNs, and particularly, yes, caching headers. of people use CDNs, but they use it for the content. They use it for their images or for their JavaScript. They've got static.bbc.co.uk or uh, images.cnn.com. Few enough people have um, either CDN or caching headers on the, the HTML themselves because your blog site is so critically important. You can't even cache it for three seconds or an hour because when you publish (laughs) that new blog article, it's got to be out there. You publish one a month, but you have a cache control of zero seconds just in case that's the second you're going to publish it. And I really encourage people to look at that. Um, I normally do three hours on most of the websites I do. Um, No, I don't look after news or Reuters.com or NBGATN.
2: In that context it's important it's worthwhile noting that you can distinguish in the caching headers between caching in a, in a shared cache like a CDN or a proxy and a private cache which is your browser cache and if for some reason you you're wary of caching in the browser because you're worried about somebody being stuck with well not so much necessarily an outdated version I've seen developers worry about being stuck with a buggy version. Um, when you're caching in a shared store, a uh, 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 cache like a CDN, you should be able to put a longer caching header, uh, and and you will get much of the benefit. So even yeah, you, yeah So even if you're like putting the... zero in in max age for you for the browser cache, put a higher value for s max age.
1: Yeah, and a lot of the, well, uh, not a lot, not as many as I'd like. Some of them allow um, cache re- invalidation. So you launch a new version of your site, you can tell all the CDNs. Both get rid of it immediately and take effect now. And If I don't launch a new post for a month, then that never gets invalidated. So you get the best of both worlds in that you can have a long S max age, as you say, and then also instant revalidation, re-validation whenever you go. that.
2: But even if you, like you said, it, it's a feature that I think it's now available with most CDNs, by the way. Uh, and there's no reason why not to use it. But even if you're not using it, even putting a, a shared cache duration of, let's say, 10 seconds can potentially yes. mean that 90% of your user or visitors get a cached version. That's that's really
1: important because, like, if you've got, you know, you do that viral post that everyone loves and ten thousand people come to your website in um in the space of an hour if you've no caching at all and you say everything goes back one 10,000 people are all hitting your tiny little cheapo origin server that you launched whenever you first launched your blog and forgot to upgrade so that's a big something wham and then suddenly half of it doesn't work and it's slow um you set 10 seconds so, 10,000 people divided by how many? There's 600 seconds in an hour, 610 second things in an hour. Suddenly, you're only getting one six hundredth of that hidden through. And everyone else is getting the cash version. So, you check it from Rio de Janeiro in Brazil, they've got a local copy that hasn't to go all the way back to your server. So, you're right, setting a ridiculously low uh, time five seconds, 10 seconds, a minute. Um, is rarely going to cause a problem unless you are a Reuters.com or a um a you know BBC.com that really wants to do a news website and do that. And the the uh, impact can be amazing because as I say ninety percent, ninety nine percent of your traffic uh, on a busy day suddenly will get that um, boost of having it all cash at the edge and actually going there. Um so yeah, uh, those are the, the L C P ones. I'll have less on the, the CLS ones, and we'll, on we'll go quicker there. Um, CLS, um, back forward catch would be my big one on that. Um, so to explain that, um, and again, it affects SPAs less so, um, but for any website, whenever you load it, the browser gets all the resources, puts them together, like a big jigsaw, things are shifting around while it's loading it, ads are coming in, and then um, the page is done. And you might get to see a lot of CLS during that. And let's say you're a uh, newspaper article, your BBC or whatever, and then you click on uh, an article to read, you go to that, you read it, then you're probably going to click back and actually go back to the the newspaper articles and and pick another article to do that. When you go back, with your correct cache control headers, most of it will be stored in the browser, but it still has to rebuild that whole page. Yeah, it's slightly quicker because it's got all the resources to hand, but it's still in JavaScript-heavy websites, it's got to sit there and do that, and you quite often see that CLS impact again. What well, the back-forward cache does is it stores it in memory for a few minutes while you go away, not forever. Um, and then when you click back, it just says, I've already built the page, here you go. And that can be a real game-changer in both LCP and CLS, but particularly CLS where we saw the big impact whenever we launched it. Um, so check that you're eligible for that. Because by default you are, but there's a couple of JavaScript APIs you can use, or if you set cache control, no store. Um, if you use unload handlers, both of which we're trying to see if we can get uh, around for the back forward cache. But the minute that's the case um, on desktop, if you use those, you won't be eligible, and you'll have to do that whole rebuild again, and that can have a real impact to your CLS. Um, other than that, CLS is kind of normal stuff just gives everything dimensions and make sure that nothing's you know, if you if something's loading late, make sure you've reserved space for it. Make sure your images have height and width and that sort of thing.
2: So I would add uh, two more things related to CLS. One, um, if you're using custom fonts, you probably want to preload them uh, and, and, and with high priority, uh, although they by default will have high priority for uh, being fonts. And the second thing is be careful when using... Font-related
1: CSS units. Yes, I agree with both those. I would say that fonts. I, I, I say preload them anyway because I hate that whole inflation sort of thing that you get, where it loads the fallback font and then suddenly the custom font comes in, and it's kind of. Yeah, it just annoys me that whole, uh, you uh, can't thing. win. <laughs> But preloading, it gets, it gets rid of that. But I will say, in general, those are usually quite small shifts. So what you're doing is you're kind of... A font might go... A headline might go to two lines, in which case it'll be larger. But usually it's, a, it's kind of... You're getting smaller percentages. But yeah, it, it does cause a shift. Whereas yeah, an image not it's having height and width has a, has a much bigger impact.
2: Yeah, unless it's the menu at the top and the font loads and pushes the rest of the page down. So the shift is small, but it impacts the entire page.
1: Yeah, because CLS looks at how much shifted and how much did it shift by. So you're right. If it's front at the top, it will shift the whole page or 90% of the page a little, which will be – but because it's a small amount, then it will measure up. It will be measurable, definitely, and it will potentially knock you out of the good into the bad thing. But generally, fonts are – I find it more annoying for that inflation effect than I do for the CLS thing. Another annoying
2: thing that I see in this context is when the fallback and the main main font, you know, uh, a line breaks or doesn't break. And so it's two lines and then it becomes one line and it pulls everything up and it's really annoying when that happens. Uh, Anyway, so we spoke about uh, CLS and the last one is FID slash INP. What would be your recommendations there?
1: stop using so much JavaScript. <laughs> <laughs> I'm You're sorry, I'm in the podcast for this. <laughs> but um, no, seriously, that's like, again, going back to those emails we talked about at the beginning, I've had a lot of panicky people contact us. And we have a lot of great developer documentation on IMP, but it's very low-level developer documentation of this is how you should write your JavaScript and so on and so forth. A lot of it's out of people's control. It's third-party JavaScript. It's... Um, Google embeds sometimes, um, quite often, you know, Google Tag Manager, Google Maps, Google YouTube, all those sorts of things, that um, you don't have any control about developing that. So I'm actually changing um, my opinion of this a little bit, and I think we need to change our, um, our, size, uh, our approach there of, I think, and particularly also for site builders, um, and by that I mean non-developers. So if you're using WordPress or Wix or Shopify, and you're building your website, and you're maybe not the most technical person, you're not writing all this JavaScript, you're just trying to run a business. Um, You get these scary emails, what are you supposed to do? Um, And I think for a lot of that, it's looking at what you're loading on your website, and do you need it? Do you have a tag manager with all your marketing tags from summer 2021? And do you just like to add tags, or your marketing department likes to add tags, but they never like to take them away? Are you, did you try 46 different plugins before you found the one that was right, but forgot to remove the other 45? Um, so is there a lot <laughs> of junk loading your website that just isn't being used? So that's my biggest advice. Are you using the Google Maps SDK, which is quite a, a chunky thing because you have a map on your contact us page, but, you, but you're loading it on every single other page? Um, that's overkill. Have a look and see what you're loading on each web page and whether you need it. Is there old stuff? Can you do a spring clean? That would always be my first advice for IMP is just clean up your website and see what you're going for. Now, for people who've been looking at this for a while, for the Dan Spears of the World and uh, Chuck Woods, you know, maybe you've already done that and you've got a nice website, and you need something a bit more detailed, we've great docs on that. But for most people, and particularly non-developers, that's the first step step, is just do a quick run-through, screen clean of your website, remove all the stuff that you didn't. You, You don't end up using, oh, that analytics product that I thought was going to be great, but I never had time to look at. Do we take it away or whatever? And then, uh, and then, similarly, yeah, for um, your own website is um, the stuff, the code that you are in charge of is Mm -hmm. break up long tasks. That's, I mean, that's what IMP is all about. It's about stopping these big, huge, long chunks of JavaScript saying, I am more important than the user. Screw the user. I'm going to take as long as I like to do this. So can we put in more things there? And I think that's a responsibility um, of ourselves as web developers, but also the JS framework developers, the libraries, the third-party people like the Googles of the world. I think all of us need to get more friendly with that main thread and be, give up more of our time there and say, yeah, someone else can get a little bit of time on this thing. Um, Because JavaScript by by default just sits there and is greedy. It'll just hold on to that main thread until it's done. Um, Whereas what you need to say is, "Eh, I've done enough. Give someone else a go, and then I'll have another go in a minute. So if I can
2: quickly add to that, and I know that we are running towards the end of our our show, but I really wanted to add a few points to that. So um, if you're a developer and you've uh, cleaned up all the Third-party scripts that you can—you're you're still seeing um, inp issues or performance issues related to all these scripts. Uh, then you should look at Party Town. Uh, it's not an easy undertaking. Uh, it actually can be quite challenging because it really depends on which you know pixels and scripts you're using. Some of them have kind of quote-unquote box solutions. Many of them do not. Uh, But if you can get it to work, it can make a huge difference. So that's that. And the other thing is that I'm really happy about is that a lot of the uh, frameworks are coming out with newer versions that are tackling this long task issue head-on by uh, looking at reducing the amount of JavaScript being downloaded, uh, splitting the execution of that JavaScript into smaller parts, smaller tasks, uh, and, and generally being smarter about it. Um, and if you're using React, then the recommendation that I would give to you, would and you, know, and you need to be or you want to be using React, then the recommendation that I would be giving to you is be careful of, uh, of uh, re-renders. Uh, I'm seeing a lot of cases where doing that initial render phase or hydration phase, uh, there are a lot of re-renders going on and they just, you know, tack on one after the other and it results in a really long initial render stage.
1: Yeah, I think IMP measures three things. So FID measured that input delay. IMP measures your input delay, which is... Other stuff is running and you can't get on that. It might be the exact same interaction because you double-click that thing and it's taking forever. Or it might be your code. It might be some other code. It might be um, third-party code. But that delays one part of it. Then there's your code. If your code takes too long, that's the easiest bit because you can quite often optimize that. Your code is running. How long is that? And then the third component of IMP is the render stuff. And again, that you're right, that often gets forgot about of how long until you get that next paint something has to happen if it's a big um old-school javascript framework from a few versions ago might have to re-render the whole page and that might be really expensive and really complicated to to do so yeah and I, I, like you i'm really excited the way they're doing it. and this is kind of the point in core web vitals is to drive this stuff it isn't necessary to say all oh, site owners have to fix everything let's say we all have a responsibility so react is latest versions is it tries to chunk things up into 50 millisecond chunks uh, max um that's not saying you, you can't go in there and put a 300 millisecond thing or a one second code in there so they can only do so much but it's great they're starting to think about that and trying to take these lessons and, and do that try and be performant by default um so yeah very excited
0: about that awesome so I did have one more question I know we're kind of getting toward the end of our time and maybe you can just answer this quickly and I think i kind of know part of the answer but um i've talked to a few people about core web vitals and they get frustrated they're like why does google even care how my site performs right don't they just care about the content and that it answers the person's question so can you just answer that in like a minute or two
1: yeah i mean i guess we want the web to succeed um and um This is very much my opinion, by the way. There isn't a textbook answer to this that you're given when you join Google. Uh, But my opinion is we want the web to succeed. And I'm not sure the ranking impact of core web vitals or how much little it is. I think there's been a lot of talk about whether that was over-egged at the beginning and if it's much smaller impact and stuff like that. But given two sites that can both give you the black shoes that I mentioned before or uh, um, the who won the football last night um, result, Of course, we're going to want to give the one that's got the better experience as a higher Mm -hmm. uh, version there, all else being equal. um, I think caveat is all else is quite often not equal, and Barry's isn't going to be as authoritative as BBC or Wikipedia or whatever. So there's quite a lot to take in there. Having the most performant website doesn't mean you should right up to the top of the ranking there. But in general, yeah, we want the website to, to the web to succeed. And the more people use that, um, Google's in the business of the web and it benefits us and it, it's it's good for us. Um, we also, as a product person, um, use the web a lot. And we get lots of complaints about Chrome's using up all my energy and stuff like that cause people have 500 tabs open of the most god-awful websites ever that are really hogging the main thread and killing your computer. So I think that's my opinion of why Google cares about this sort of stuff.
2: Yeah, I, I... I agree. And given that I've never, ever worked at Google, so all my perspectives are from the outside looking in. But it's kind of like how Google pushed the use of HTTPS uh, over HTTP. You know, you might say, why does Google care if websites are secure or not secure, if they're hackable or not, if you get, you know, somebody spies on your traffic or not? Google cares because luckily for us, at least that's the way I see it, Google's business interests often align with the success of the web, with the success of this uh, platform that we're using. And we're lucky in that. And it causes Google to promote best practices that are good for all. So it's security, it's
1: accessibility, and it's also performance. And some of those things, you know, Cost Google in various ways. There was a talk of whenever that HTTPS was happening, way before I joined Google, the crawl times would take longer, and of uh, Google search would take longer because there's a actual processing impact to using HTTPS rather than HTTP. Um, Google Ads often fights with uh, us sitting there saying make your ads more performance uh, in the Chrome team or so and so. Google isn't one monolithic uh, company. There's lots of different interests there, but in general. You're right, we want the web to succeed. Awesome.
0: All right. Well, let's go ahead and uh do picks. Dan, do you have some picks for us?
2: I have uh pick and a half. So, uh my pick is uh we're watching um Silicon Valley, the TV show, the uh, the the sitcom mm-hmm. uh and, you know, it's it's kind of old, I mean, I think it's a decade old or something like that, but somehow I I saw snippets from it, but never actually watched it in its entirety, and we're having a blast. We're up to season four, and it's so good. Not only is it funny and intelligent and engaging, but I find myself in so many situations looking at the, the scenarios that they're describing or the characters on the show saying, I know this person or I've experienced that. So even some of the wackiest things, like the, the most nonsensical things that happen on the show, I turn to my wife and tell her, you know, I've actually experienced this or I've seen this happen. And and it's so amusing in that regard. Um, so so yeah, so I'm really loving it. And I highly, if, if for any reason you've not seen it, I highly recommend uh, watching uh, the show uh, Silicon Valley. Uh, so that would be my main pick or my primary pick. And then my other pick, my other two picks are, are the ongoing war in Ukraine, which is still ongoing and help the people there and the ongoing fight for democracy in Israel. You know, again, I, I don't know if what you can do to help us, but if you can show support, please do. And those would be my picks for today.
0: All right. Um, I'm going to throw in some picks. So I'm going to pick something that I've picked before, but uh, we were playing this last night, uh, me and my kids, and my wife. Um, it's a game called The Crew. It's a card game. Um, and effectively, you get missions, which are just different cards that have to be uh, taken in tricks by different players. Um, and they have like, Fifty. I think they have 15 missions that you can complete and so yeah anyway you you deal out the cards there's a trump suit it's yeah it's pretty straightforward we were playing it with five players which is actually a little bit harder I think the best experience I've had is playing it with four I've played it with three as well you can play it two to five players um, each round takes anywhere from a few minutes up to maybe 15 20 minutes. Um, it has a board game rank of 1.96, so it's pretty simple game, uh, but it's a lot of fun. We've really, really enjoyed it. Um, It's rated for 10 plus, and that's probably about right. I I have a daughter that's almost eight, and she like she knows her colors and and numbers, but some of the strategies just a little bit more advanced than what she really processes, right? Because you you have to communicate to the other players. Uh, you you have a token you can put on a card in front of you. Um, so you put one of your cards down face up so people can see you have the card and then you put a token on it to let them know if it's your highest, lowest, or only card of that color. And then knowing when to take a trick and when not to take a trick. I think those are the areas where it's just a little bit beyond where she's at. But um, the other kids enjoy it. I have an 11-year-old that, you know, he was playing and he really liked it. and so. Anyway, I'm going to pick that. Um, and then um, I'm kind of, I've been talking to a lot of people about um, where they're at and what they're struggling with. And, and what I'm finding is kind of two things. And so I'm just going to talk a little bit about something I'm working on. Um, and that is that people either look at the current job market and they're not super confident about where they could land if something went wrong. And they're not super confident they could get a job that they would enjoy, even though they may not be happy anymore where they are. And so people are kind of camping out. And so they're like, "How do I find a job in this market?" Right? And and the markets vary from where you live and and all that stuff, right? So I, I'm I'm painting in broad strokes, um, but I I've found that there are certain things that people can do in order to help out. And so I'm putting together a, a group of people that you know get together. Um, on a weekly basis and network and learn new things and have people come present and stuff like that so that we can uh, grow that. And I'd love to just get people's feedback. And so if you just go to topendevs.com slash group feedback, um, I'd just love to talk to you for 15, 20 minutes, maybe a half hour about, you know, what this is and what your problems are and how this could solve it or not solve it or do better or whatever um i just want the feedback so that i know that i'm kind of chasing the right thing if that makes sense and then um i've also been enjoying the women's world cup now i'm like four or five games behind so if you know who's won uh any of the <laughs> matches in the quarterfinal shut up um and uh yeah uh i'm i'm probably going to watch one or two of the matches today um but yeah i'm i'm really really enjoying it so um, even though the US is out and Italy is out. Um, anyway, so I'm going to pick that as well. Uh, Barry, what are your picks?
1: Um, it's the time of the year, so I'm going to pick holidays. It's a bit of a generic one, but I actually, at the minute when I'm meeting people and I get an out of office and they're out for a week or two weeks, I'm actually, I get a big smile on my face. I was like, good. We all work very hard throughout the year, and it's great at the moment to actually see so many people away and actually going away and enjoying life. (laughs) Live to work, don't – no, sorry, that's the wrong way around. Work to live, don't live to work. So uh, big time of year for everyone going away, and I would encourage everyone to go out there, take your time off, throw your phone away, turn off your work email, and actually just chill and you've got family, play with them and uh, relax. So big shout-out to holidays um in general totally uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, um and then the other one i'm going to say is um all the people that do try to move the web forward um again a bit of a generic one but i've been doing stuff on standards and um i do a lot of work with the web performance working group and, and dan's part of as well um i got my first commit to uh, html spec um uh, last week um, I'm sorry, i to tweak.
2: Congratulations.
1: Pretty excited for that. But no, there's, there's a cool wealth of people out there. Not all of them work for the big companies that Google or get paid to, um, Google wages or something like that, but really try and commit and make the web better. So big shout out to everyone that raises bugs and tries to improve things rather than just moaning, shrugging and turning around and moving on. Um, yeah, particularly working in Google, I see that side of it now. A lot more than I used to. Be. I
2: I feel really good about myself. Whenever I submit, let's say, a bug on the uh, Chromium uh, bug repository, um, and you know, if if I can provide like a good example, then then even more so. Uh, so for the, so for sure, uh, I'm I'm totally with you on that. You know, some people are, are really doing you know, great amazing job Pushing the entire framework forward for all of us.
1: Yeah, and I think everyone can commit that. You don't have to be able to, uh, to know C and be able to write browsers. Just raising bugs with a decent test case is is 90% of the problem. Um, that percentage is totally made up. But you know what I mean? Everyone <laughs> can contribute that. And whenever I see people doing that, I, again, it makes me happy. Get another little smile there.
0: All right. If people want to follow you online, where do they find you?
1: I'm still hanging around Twitter to the skeleton before it dies its lap there. <laughs> I refuse to call it X. Um, so I'm actioning the web on Twitter. I'm pretty much actioning the web on most other platforms, but Twitter's the one that I'm still um, hanging on to, dear life.
2: I, I'll okay. say something about this. You know, it's it's funny. So for a while, my about me slides and talks started expanding and growing like in addition to the uh my uh, twitter handle i added the mastodon handle and then the blue sky handle and i never actually got around to threads but uh, but uh, and now it seems to be contracting back again because i'm not really active on those other platforms somehow i'm Mm -hmm. still mostly or almost totally only active on Twitter slash X. Yep. So hopefully it survives. What can I say? Yeah, Not
1: so hopeful, but, well, I'm hopeful, but not, no, I'm hoping, but not hopeful, if you know what I mean.
0: <laughs> yeah. yeah. It, there, there are a lot of things that go into that. I don't know. It seems like that Elon Musk has some other idea for what he wants it to end up being. And I, I think I don't know. I've seen a lot of people say a lot of things that are, you know, Elon said this or did this or whatever, and I don't like it, so I'm going to quit Twitter. But it's where everybody is. So, unless I think he makes it into something that nobody wants to use.
1: I do think there's a a lot of people leaving it, which is a real shame. I I think I I, I owe my job to things like Twitter, and I met a lot of people online, and being able to speak to the people who work in projects work in specs and stuff like that, and people who are very open with their time uh, the, It's fantastic. The way that and I see shame.
2: it the way that I see it, I'm interacting with, on Twitter with people that a lot of them a lot of them are my friends or, or people that I find interesting. I don't interact on Twitter with Elon Musk. so right. uh, I don't really care so much about what he says or does in in this context. I'm more worried that he might break the platform uh, right. by doing something unfortunate. Um, but the other things that he's doing, I, I, I get why some people are really upset. But at the end of the day, Putin is not. So so let's put things in in, in perspective and, and proportion. Uh, and you know, I'm still there.
0: Yep. All right, well, I'm going to go ahead and wrap this up here. And until next time, folks, Max out.